0: Amen. Thank you all for praying with me. I pray that everybody... Has sought the Lord with their hearts this evening, and I pray that you've brought your Bibles with you. We're going to be in Jeremiah 43. We're going to cover the last little bit of this book this evening. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been studying Jeremiah on Wednesday evenings for quite a while now. Uh, We went chapter by chapter for a pretty long period, longer than I thought we would actually go, um, up until about chapter 33, and uh, now we've spent the last couple of weeks sort of grouping chapters together and doing summaries of, not that they're less important, uh, but as Jeremiah kind of wraps his message up and as we talked last week, as Jeremiah's personal story comes to an end, uh, our goal has been to kind of group these chapters together and see what the overall theme and overall message Jeremiah has given to us. So, this will be our last time in Jeremiah. Uh, So, again, kind of the end of the movie. So, we're going to do our best to wrap uh, a nice bow on the the book. Um, Of course, if you've been here for the entire study, you've known that we've talked about and you've heard that we've talked about um, how God had a covenant. God made a covenant with the people of Israel. and they broke that covenant, but ultimately God always intended to replace that covenant with something better, with something new, which is what Jeremiah was building up to for so long. He preached and he preached and nobody listened. And then finally God revealed to Jeremiah that it was all part of his plan. His plan was to bring Israel to a place where it was clear that the law could not save, the old covenant could not save, but only something new, only something better, only something greater which would bring a savior into the world. And that, of course, previews the New Testament. So in a sense, Jeremiah is not the last book of the Old Testament, but it is sort of a, finality, a finale for the Old Testament in that Israel has coming, is coming to a crossroads. The nation of Israel has been taken into exile. Uh, we'll, we'll read a summary of that story tonight at the end of Jeremiah where the people are taken into Babylonian captivity. Uh, the king of Babylon comes in and raises the nation. Um, so again, there's a sense of finality in this book but we also get a sense and a glimpse of something yet to come. Uh, so if you haven't ever studied the book of Jeremiah, I encourage you. It's been challenging. It's been at times overwhelming uh, because if, 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 and I promise you, if you open up the first 10 chapters, his word is so relevant to our generation as he deals with the immorality, the injustices of his time. Uh, you read these pages and you think, wow, is this a prophet in our own day speaking to our own nation? And it very well could be, and it very well can be applied. Um, Yet, uh, we want to make sure we stay true to what God's word is saying and, and appreciate what He was given in the original um, generation. Uh, So last week, uh, I told you we had two more weeks in Jeremiah. Last week was about ending Jeremiah's story, his personal journey. And this week's about wrapping up the story that he's writing, the story that he's telling, the story of Israel going into exile. So just to recap, uh, a a quick word about Jeremiah's story, um, because his story kind of ends around 43, 44, 45, as he kind of gives his last oracle. um, And, uh, of course, he kind of gives a word to his scribe, to his disciples. Baruch and then Jeremiah doesn't really speak anymore we read his oracles but we don't really see him as preaching uh you know in in a a narrative sense um Jeremiah, we talked last week that uh, his story may come to an end, but his ministry wasn't over, and of course his ministry hasn't ever ended. He's continuing to minister to us. Uh, He's in heaven, but his word is still continuing to teach us. But we anchored our conversation last week around this theme of ministry, and I've got here at the first of our notes. You'll uh, we'll be referencing these in our first few minutes. Uh, We talked last week about how we all have a ministry, not just preachers and pastors and the ancient world prophets and apostles. We all have a ministry. And a ministry is just making our lives matter for God. Uh, A ministry that you uh, take active intention at work, at home, in your community. A ministry is not just about pulpits and pews and Bibles and sermons. A ministry is about a life. It's about a life that is put to work for the glory of God. A life that chooses kindness over uh, animosity. A life that chooses generosity over greed. A life that chooses giving, right, instead of taking. A life that chooses love over hatred, right. We all have opportunities to minister and all of us have a ministry and all of us are called to be active with our lives and serve with our lives. Now, Jeremiah, of course, had a pretty important ministry. His job was to bring the word of God to a people to that had walked away from God and a people that weren't. By no means going to come back to God. Uh, God told Jeremiah at the very beginning, they're not going to listen to you, but I still want you to do it, to, to give it your best. Uh, and, and what we've read and what we've summarized is that Jeremiah was faithful to the very end of his ministry. Uh, even though he never got the appreciation, he never got the acknowledgement that he deserved, he never got the respect and the response that he deserved and isn't it true when we don't get that in our own day it makes us a little bit less inclined to do ministry it makes us a little hurt and of course all of us have been there it makes us a little bit burnt out and we can get frustrated and we can get kind of fed up with the the things that are not working in our favor yet more importantly not only was Jeremiah not respected and he wasn't responded to his message which was from God was ignored and that was the biggest problem for his generation yet Jeremiah persisted and even after his story was over, his writings continue, his ministry continued. Now, When there was not much life left in him, uh, we talked how he was taken to Egypt. The people, uh, God told them to stay in Egypt. The ones that weren't taken captive, they said, Hey, we don't want to. We want to go out to to a place that we might can rebuild our lives and find prosperity. Jeremiah said, This is not God's will. Yet they said, Yes, it is God's will, and you're going with us. So they packed Jeremiah up in the entourage and they took him down to Egypt, and that's where he spends out the rest of his life. Um, He had no strength. He had no strategy to get home as an older man. He would spend the days, his remaining days, writing what God revealed to him, knowing that he would never go back to Judea. Uh, his scribe Baruch was there with him who would eventually make his way back to Judea being a younger man. He would eventually compile Jeremiah's writings into the book that we have them and of course into the Bible that would include them. Um, but I think it's fitting that Jeremiah's personal story kind of ends before we get to the rest of the book ends. Um, I, I say fitting not because that's how it should be or has to be but that seemed to be how the lot fell for Jeremiah. It seemed to Be how things just kind of worked out for him. You almost kind of feel bad for him, and and we have felt bad for him. Um, But what we've learned, though, it's not always how it seems, and it's not always how it appears. You know, ministry from a worldly and outward perspective here at number three, ministry can sometimes be a thankless mission, as in we don't really get the credit or we don't, you know, we do something and nobody notices or we do something and people kind of take advantage and we've been there. Ministry can be a thankless mission, but what we have to remember is that we cannot, and I stress cannot, look for affirmation in the world or we will be disappointed. Jeremiah struggled with affirmation and validation his entire 20-year ministry and was never truly recognized for the man we know he was. Now, if you've read the story, Jeremiah stood up to politicians. He stood up to the religious leaders. He stood up to culture, and he said, this is what God says, and you're doing it wrong. And he won nothing but criticism. He won nothing but critics. They tried to kill him. They tried to silence him. Eventually, they took him away. But he was bold. But that didn't get him anything from the world's perspective or from the world's uh, the base. Now, what we saw and what we've seen in Jeremiah in number four is, yes, he stood up and he didn't get anything but criticism, yet he did not grow bitter. He did not become hateful. He did not become proud. He never was condescending, which aren't those attributes that we often acquire when we seem to have the luck or the fortune that Jeremiah faced. Sometimes I think that's true for a lot of us. It's easy to get condescending and bitter and and hateful and and, and get proud in our own righteousness. Uh, Jeremiah remained focused on the Lord and remained faithful to the Lord. Now, I want to read Jeremiah 43. I want us to read the first seven verses. This, From what the scripture says, um, this is Jeremiah's last public sermon. Uh, which I think that's pretty important to make note of. Uh, now, again, this is not the last chapter of, the bio, of, of his book. We read uh, uh, 10 more chapters, which is part of the oracles that God gave Jeremiah that we know and we believe that he didn't preach publicly, but that he wrote and inscribed and, of course, that are recorded in the book. But you'll understand why this was the last sermon that he preached publicly by how these first seven verses kind of play out. Now, it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people all the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent him to them, all these words. So again, this is kind of, that's a summary of his last oracle to the people. That Azariah, the son of Hashahiah, and Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, you speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, do not go down to Egypt to dwell there. And they said, Jeremiah, you're telling us a lie. You've been lying to us for 20 years even though everything you've said has come true we're just gonna you know pretend that didn't happen but baruch the son of neriah has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the chaldeans or the babylonians that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to babylon so, Johanan, the son of Korea, all the captains of the forces and all the people would not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnants of Judah who had returned to the dwell in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been driven, men, women, children, the king's daughters, every person whom Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah big kind of mouthful of names there but this is basically the people that were not taken captive the people that weren't considered good enough to be brought into the king's court in Babylon people that weren't considered strong enough or or you know uh, equipped enough to be slaves uh, this was kind of just the remnant that Nebuchadnezzar said just leave them there and let them die out um, God said stay I'm going to restore you but they said nope we're going to Egypt. So the the guy that they appointed, their kind of, you know, uh, deputy, uh, if you will, of, of, the, of the remnant, he rounded everybody up and by force took them all to the land of Egypt. Verse seven. So they went to the land of Egypt and underline this. This is kind of a big anchor verse, not just for this chapter, but for the whole book of Jeremiah. So they went to the land of Egypt for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. So that kind of puts into context the entire book of Jeremiah doesn't it why did they even get to this point because they didn't obey the voice of the Lord and Jeremiah kind of suffers with them even though Jeremiah was the one that was shining the light the whole time. And you think, you know, it's not fair. Ezekiel got to go to Babylon and he was a prophet in in the kind of, not the slums, but he was a prophet in kind of the camps of of Jews that camped outside of Babylon in in the refugee camps. Ezekiel was a a prophet in Babylon. Daniel was a prophet amongst the the court and the the royalty of Babylon. Jeremiah got left behind. Jeremiah got left behind to be a part of this sort of rebellion and, and, and this sort of uh, hodgepodge group that said, you know what, we're gonna go down to Egypt and we're gonna live out our days where it all started. Now, Jeremiah, again, you could think, man, this is kind of a, a bad way to end and, and you would have thought his story would have just ended in obscurity. Uh, but history tells us that Jeremiah is remembered very fondly. Uh, of course, the Jewish people would, all, would look back and realize how wrong they were to ignore his word. Um, and when Jesus showed up, uh, there's a really cool passage when Jesus shows up and, and people are still trying to figure out who he is. Uh, he asked the disciples uh, in Matthew 16, he says, hey, who what, who do people think I am or what do people say about me on the street. And uh, again, we don't really know if they believe that, you know, he was someone that had been to heaven and came back. But when they, when they answer him, they say, well, Jesus, some say you're John the Baptist. I mean, raised from the dead. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. So again, obviously Jeremiah had been raised to this echelon of pretty important and pretty respected prophets uh, to when Jesus was doing his miracles and preaching his sermons and bringing people. Th- in the presence of God, people thought that Jeremiah had come back and, or people associated with Jesus with Jeremiah, uh, because of how great they remembered Jeremiah to be. Now, if you would have told Jeremiah back then, Hey, one day you're going to be remembered as one of the greatest prophets of all time. He would have said, you know what? I don't need the sympathy. I don't need the lies. I know my purpose. I've done it. I'm going to live out my days in Egypt. I'm okay with that. Um, but when his years of limelight grew dim, uh, he knew that much of the remaining revelation would be penned and preserved by Baruch, his scribe. Um, he uh, encouraged him not to give up. We, we closed last week with a look at chapter 45 where he tells Baruch that God will give you life even when it seems like this world is taking it away from you. Trust in the Lord. Don't trust in your circumstances. Don't trust in your surroundings. You know, we find that theme at the heart of the last 10 chapters or so as upon the word of Nebuchadnezzar to besiege and take the nation captive. Uh, Jeremiah urged the people to surrender. He urged them to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. uh, And that was a preposterous message to the people because they thought, why would God want us to surrender to somebody who's a pagan king? Uh, Jeremiah saw a bigger picture though. He knew that God was gonna discipline Israel through Nebuchadnezzar, but then one day would raise them back up. But they needed to cooperate with his plans. Uh, Now, they were at a unique place in history. Both with God's revelation ongoing and and His work with Israel, but we are going to talk tonight a lot about how God still works with and over the nations this same way. That we might not always understand why He raises one nation up and lowers another that may look more godly than the one He raised up. We may not understand why He allows this to go on and this He you know stops in a minute. But ultimately, we take notes from the history and the Bible, whereas God allowed Babylon to be raised up because he was pushing the, na- pushing the world, pushing time towards the arrival of the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, God raises nations up and lowers other nations, all about spreading the supremacy of his name, the great I am, Yahweh. In the Old Testament, it's all about spreading the supremacy of God and preparing for Messiah. But now on this side of the cross God raises and lowers and works amongst the nations for the same purpose to spread the gospel of Messiah spread the gospel of Jesus and prepare his kingdom so likewise God is still active God is still present in our world even if we don't always understand it even if we don't always agree with it now the people of Israel thought well God would never do this Jeremiah but exactly but that is exactly what he was doing, yet they would not cooperate. When God said surrender, they would not surrender. When God said remain, they would not remain. Now, I want to talk about this because I think it's important. They end up back in Egypt. Is that not kind of ironic? I mean, you know how this story started, don't you? I mean, I asked the question at number seven, do you think it's a coincidence That Jeremiah, it's all about the Old Covenant ending. It's all about the law being ineffective to change hearts, and it could not govern spiritually. It's about a rebellious Judah given freedom by God, but they stumble it and fumble the ball. Don't you think it's ironic, and do you think it's a coincidence that this story of the Old Covenant crumbling, the law being ineffective, Judah losing what God gave them, it all ends up with the nation and and get this, voluntarily going back to Egypt. Remember how Jeremiah, in chapter 31, he said, I am the God who took you by the hand and drug you out of where? Egypt. The old covenant was unable to save. It was proven in their disobedience. They literally ended up back where they started, thousand plus years before now when you when the bible rhymes when the bible is symmetrical pay attention to that you know the tower of babel the nations are spread they're confounded but then at pentecost the nations come back together in one language when stuff rhymes in the bible and you know what i mean by rhymes when it when it sounds similar pay attention to that right Jeremiah's story about how Israel came out of Egypt and was established by God, but lost sight of him and rebelled against him. Where do they end up? Back where they started. Back where they were saved from. And ought to mention, some of them had been taken captive to another kingdom, on the other side of the world jeremiah spent his last few years saying don't go remain wait out this time of discipline and again jeremiah 43 verse 7 is a powerful summary verse they rejected god's word he got, jeremiah for years preached repent and they didn't repent he preached surrender they didn't surrender he preached remain they didn't remain now, Jeremiah 43 begins by telling us these are Jeremiah's final words, which includes, of course, the last 10 chapters would have been what he wrote um, in his private time uh, as being obedient to God, getting revelation from God. And of course, the context of the chapters make it clear that he's not really talking to somebody. He's just writing about what history would prove to actually be true. So God goes on to tell them in chapter 44, which we believe was delivered to them through letter or through an oracle, through somebody else, maybe Baruch. In chapter 44, we won't read this, this chapter, but um, God says, some of you will go back to Israel in the future, but most of you will die in Egypt. Most of you will die in Egypt because you are going to be judged for your adultery, for your clinging to the false hope that somehow Egypt's prosperity may save them. Now, why would they go to Egypt? Now, the reason they went to Egypt, because in, in the ancient world at the time, there were two superpowers, Babylon, which had just taking them captive. You don't want to go there. They tried to get away from there. They went to Egypt because Egypt was an enemy of Babylon. They thought, hey, we'll go and we'll take refuge in Egypt because Egypt is big enough and far enough away that Nebuchadnezzar won't be able to conquer them. He does eventually, but they thought that they might would be spared and they thought Egypt was prosperous and they could have refuge in, in the land that, uh, that they had heard so much about. And I think we can see some similarities in our own selves in this story. That Oftentimes we get so worried about something on this side that rather than looking to God and trusting his plan in the middle where we're at, we cling to something else that doesn't prove to be stronger and doesn't prove to be better, but it makes us feel better. You know what that is? It's an idol. It's an idol. Like the Jewish people, we reject God's rule and we heap to ourselves empty vessels that gleam of riches but are hollow. They lack that which can bring true and spiritual prosperity and blessing. I think we could obviously do a great amount of commentary about our nation right now. That we often point the finger over here. And rather than looking to God for help, we go over here. For help and you can think i 'm talking about certain people and certain sides, but i 'm talking about any side that does not look to God right there 's a quote by John Calvin, the great reformer um, now this is these aren 't my words i don 't know, know if I actually i don 't necessarily agree with this entirely, but I thought it would be worth putting out there there's a quote by john calvin i 've got it number ten in your notes uh, that he wrote about this book in, in commentary of ancient Israel. He wrote, when we no longer want to be governed by God, why shouldn't God send tyrants to torment and harass us? Now, Jeremiah, John Calvin didn't say that that is what God does or doesn't do. He just said, why shouldn't God do that if we basically tell him we don't want you to be our one true king? Of course, Israel had rejected God as king. God brought Babylon in to take the people captive, to teach them that they should surrender to God. But this remnant didn't want to do that. They didn't want to surrender. So they found somebody else to put their faith in. And of course, God would judge Egypt just like he would judge Babylon, just like he would judge any of the nations that did not regard him. But that quote makes you think, I think, makes me think a little bit. Um, Now, I want to spend the last few minutes talking over chapters 46 through 51. Now, if you really want to pull your hair out and think, wow, the Bible makes no sense. (laughs) Read chapter 46 through 51 with no context, which of course you wouldn't do that. But if you just open the Bible up and started reading some of these chapters, you would think, wow, I don't really know what's going on there. But I wanna help you understand that every chapter of God's word is important and inspired, but we have to know the framing around it. So Jeremiah Jeremiah 1 through 45 has been about God's message to Israel. And his message has been, you've sinned, repent. They didn't repent surrender and I'll spare you they didn't surrender so they weren't spared they were taken captive and a few were left in the land and his message to them was remain and I'll restore you they didn't remain they went to Egypt so the story ends with a thud right the story ends the people didn't surrender they didn't repent they didn't remain and now we they're kind of left we're left kind of wondering what's going to happen to them we'll come back to that in 52 But 46 through 51, God turns to the nations, the nations that he's been telling Israel, hey, I'm gonna use these nations to discipline you. Babylon, Egypt, all these other guys, I'm gonna use them to discipline you. And of course we respond, God, are those nations any better than Israel? Aren't they worse than Israel? And God says, this isn't about who's better or who's worse. This is just about what I'm doing to accomplish my will. And you may think, I don't know if, I didn't know God worked that way. I'm glad he he does work this way because God has a plan that isn't contingent to what I do or what you do. He's able to work things out and he works bigger and beyond what we can always see and even when we don't cooperate. And regarding the nations of the world, God was gonna use the nations to discipline Israel. But then in chapter 46, 51, he says, oh, by the way, nations, I'm going to punish you. Think, whoa, whoa, whoa. We only came into this story because you brought us into this story. But they, of course, were hurting his people. They were acting ungodly toward his people from Babylon to Egypt and all the other nations in between. They were were hurting his children. And in these chapters, we see that God says to the nations, because you have hurt my children, I will punish you. Now, you may say, well, why does God suddenly care about them? Hadn't he allowed them to surround his people and cause trouble for his people? Yes, he had, but this doesn't have to be a contradiction. And I wanna hopefully iron that out for you in number 12. Just because God holds his people to high standards, his people, Israel, his people, the church, his people, his people, right? Just because God holds his people to high standards and disciplines his children, doesn't mean he forgets the many injustices done in the world. See, sometimes as Christians, you know, preachers like me, we talk about the church needs to do this and the church needs to do this. The church needs to repent. And somebody might say, well, Justin, what about the world? Well, yeah, yeah, there's a big problem out there. But the Bible kind of balances this this act of God talking to his people, expecting higher things, better things, greater things out of us, And he says, yeah, yeah, don't worry, I'm not going to look past those injustices, but I am holding you to a higher standard, and I'm expecting you to be a light and to be salt in a world that clearly doesn't listen to me. So you see this kind of going back and forth in the Bible, you see it in Jeremiah especially. So this is the part of the story and of studying God's sovereignty and trust in his plans that may at times make us weary but only because sometimes God's rollout is slow, because remember, it's because He is patient and always intends on redeeming. He always intends on redemption. So that's why He was working, kind of like, I guess you could say, working both sides of the street. Now, let me explain. Since the beginning, we've witnessed this strategy from God. Remember how when God sent Jacob's family to Egypt, what was His reasoning to Abraham? I'm going to send your people to Egypt for 400 years. What was His reasoning? Because of the Canaanites, and it's this Hebrew phrase, their sin isn't full yet. And he says the Amorites, but he's talking about the Canaanites. God was going to give the Canaanites a special time in history. He was going to reveal Himself to them, preach it to them, and give them a time to repent. Of course, they were in adultery, and they did not respond. And later, Israel would bring judgment upon them as they moved back into the land. But for 450 years, they had the freedom to do as they wanted to, and God was apparently working with them. Now, remember, he sent Jonah to preach repentance to Nineveh in Assyria when Assyria would later try to hurt God's people. And, of course, Babylon would then take over Assyria. But God preached repentance to Nineveh, and a massive revival broke out. The message here is God is always working on a global scale. We don't always realize it because we usually only care about what affects us, right? And we have that kind of light shining on a hill, you know, pilgrim Puritan effect where it's just us and God. But there's a bigger world out there and God's working at all times in all places. Uh, maybe that's a good reminder that the song isn't about us, but the God is always for us. We just have to trust what part of the story we're in. Now we take heart knowing that God's in control and ultimately he is at work to bring redemption to all people. And if that means discomfort for us for a season, the prayer is that we see the bigger picture. Now the thought of that might concern us, especially in this case where God allowed the world to trample over his own people. An act of judgment on Israel was an act of mercy on the nations. Now think about that. Number 14, God allowed the nations to conquer Israel an act of judgment on Israel but this was an act of mercy on them because God was giving them an opportunity to see that he was in control they didn't see it but he was giving them a chance to but here we have God promising not to look past their sins the moral of the story so moral of the story verse number 15 we need to give God give place to God's mercy to save and his wrath to judge Just like I can't save you, it's not my place to judge you, and I can't bring wrath upon you, and I shouldn't even try. It's the grace of God that saves you, and there is the wrath of God that will judge those that rebel and are wicked and 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 turn against him. So what is our response? We should optimize our own opportunity. Now, this isn't to say that God does not defend his own and act here and now. We know the New Testament teaches us that God is passionate about his children, not just in the next life, but in this life, he wants to take care and he wants to vindicate those that have been wrong. But I'm trying to bring some perspective for us tonight to navigate these kind of murky or difficult waters in the scriptures. The Bible tells a complicated story about the nations of the world, but we know how it ends. We know how it ends. And the ending should inform our endurance. In Revelation 19, Jesus weds his bride, but in the very next passage, he defends his bride. Revelation 19, you have salvation and judgment. You have a white robe and then you have a bloodied robe. So understand that Jesus is in control and that there is a promise to save and to judge. Now, in chapter 46, God says that Egypt will be judged. Chapter 47, God says the Philistines will be judged. Chapter 48, the Moabites will be judged. Chapter 49, a whole variety of nations, the Ammonites and the Edomites and some nations that we've never heard of because they don't exist anymore and their remnants don't exist anymore. But the word is very clear. Some of these nations don't even have a connection with Israel. They had just said some bad things about them. But God shows us, and I I think this is kind of a good, good picture. We get a picture of God's war table in heaven. We get a picture of his table where all the pieces are at. Reminding us that there are a lot of pieces on God's chessboard. But what is God's motive through it all? Number six or number 17. Even to this day, God works through all the nations. Here is the main, here is his motive for an ultimate should be ultimate purpose of spreading the gospel and preparing his kingdom. That's my best way to summarize it for you. What was God doing in the Old Testament? He was setting the table for a Messiah to come through Israel. And by bringing Israel through all these nations, what was he doing? He was exposing the nations to the one true God. Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree a couple of years into the into his captivity of Israel that there is one god his name is Yahweh. Daniel shows Nebuchadnezzar the one true god. Uh, Darius the Great, or Darius the Mede, and Cyrus the Great, both Persians kings, they make decrees in their kingdoms. There is one God, Yahweh, the Great I Am. So why did God bring Israel through Egypt, and through Babylon, and through Persia, and then through Greece, and then through Rome, so that the world might know there is one God. It's the God of Israel. Little she may be, and obscure she may be, and afflicted she may be, but what did Israel show the world? There is one God. And what did that bring attention to that when that one God sent his only son and Jesus Christ was born and died and all of a sudden from his remnant from his story a church is born and where did that church end up all over the world so don't you see what God is doing he used Israel to tell the whole world there is one God and all those years later a Messiah came pointing to that one God from that same nation and then from that nation he built a church that went to the world So that is the purpose of the story. And again, we make it all about America and all about England and all about Russia and all about every other nation. And we worry, how does this affect me and me only? But don't you see that God is at work through all of us? And yes, we may rise on one day and we may fall on the next day, and it may go like we wanted to one year and not the other. But what should Christians say through it all? God is working things out for his glory. He's spreading the gospel and he's preparing his kingdom. And it may affect us negatively or positively, but ultimately on this side of things, does it really matter how it affects us? When we know where we're going and we know what God is building. See, we think that there's just a a boxing arena and one nation's in one corner and one nation's in the other corner. God is not tribal. He is God of the nations. He used Israel, yes. He has a covenant with Israel, but he uses us all. He's in control of us all. Chapters 50 through 51 address Babylon. And I encourage you to read them. Chapter 51 is a long chapter, one of the longest in the Bible. We see that God has a special word for Babylon. He raised Babylon up for one purpose, to discipline Judah. But then he would raise Persia up to punish Babylon, to save Judah. Babylon's violence would be judged the same way that he once winked at it. He would judge them. The message we see is that God's holiness was exalted over Israel's sin. It was exalted over Babylon's sin. It was exalted over the world's sin. But all of this was working out so that Israel would be saved from obscurity and hopelessness to exalt God and provide the world a savior, just like we just talked about. So what do we say in response of all, to all of this? Number 20, God raises and lowers nations as he sees fit so that he might keep his promises to both lost and saved. So what is God's promise to lost people? To share the gospel with them. Through you, by the way. What is God's promise to save people? To prepare a kingdom for you. And what is his promise also? To show his power over the wicked. He demonstrates his power over those that rebel against him. So we should take courage and heart from this story. So while we navigate and while we wait, what do we do? And we don't know what God's doing right now through America, through the Middle East, through Russia, through all the other nations, China. We don't know that. And we can say, I think this and I think that. And we hope that we're always on the winning team. We don't know. All right, we don't know what's going to happen. So what do we know? We know this, that we will be judged for the decisions that we make, but we will be saved by a decision God makes and that God has made. Our salvation is not based on what one nation does over the other, it's based on what God has done for all nations, that's through Jesus. So we must make decisions in light of that. And I hope we make the right one. And I hope that we don't panic or worry when things seem to go the wrong way. I hope we just trust God and celebrate that he's in control. Now, lastly, 52 is a summary chapter. I encourage you to read it because it brings up some of the characters that we've read about before, Zedekiah and the kings. In chapter 52, the temple burns, the king falls, the people are taken, and those that remain, as we've studied, have fled the scene. And the message ends not with gloom or doom, but we're told that one of the kings, King Jehoiachin or King Jeconiah, had been taken captive and were told that he was released from prison in Babylon and he was given a seat at the king's table as a promise to Israel that things would return, that the nation would be restored one day. Now, Jeremiah didn't get to see this. He wrote about it. He saw it, I'm sure, in a vision, but he didn't get to see it in person. Jeremiah died not getting to relish in these promises. Most of this generation died without being restored. Yet the promise here at the end of 52 is that God was gonna keep his promise to Israel and ultimately his promise to the world by bringing a savior through the nation of Israel. I wanna give you one last word on Jeremiah though. Jeremiah wrote a book called Lamentations, which is an appendix to the book of Jeremiah. It's about his sorrows. It's about his observation of the pain and the turmoil that he watched in Israel and then in Egypt. He writes about how he tried to bring people a remedy, but they never would pick it up. They never would respond. They never believed, and it broke his heart. He writes about how what he watched Israel go through was like being publicly impaled. He describes kind of an early form of crucifixion. He writes about feeling as if he was being publicly shamed. He felt like the temple had fallen on himself. He felt as if he had been murdered in front of everybody. That's how painful it was to go through what he went through. But Jeremiah did not give up, ultimately. He writes in Lamentations, some scripture that you've read before and heard before. We've sang these words many times. He writes in Lamentations 3, verse number 19. Remember my affliction and my roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and it sinks within me about the pain he was going through. But I recall this to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that those should hope and wait quietly, for salvation is of the Lord. So Jeremiah is a book about waiting We've seen one way that doesn't work, and we've seen that God is moving a lot of pieces around to make it work, but Jeremiah didn't get to enjoy this in his lifetime. He died waiting. He died hoping. We've been reminded tonight that God is sovereign, and we've seen that he did keep his promise. He restored Israel. He brought a Savior through Israel, and he brought a Savior to the world, and he built a church that you're sitting in tonight. We've seen tonight that God is just, that he vows to save and he vows to judge. The world is in his hands and maybe more importantly for you tonight, so are we. We are in his hands. So I apologize for the length and for the depth, but trying to summarize a 52 chapter book in one evening is a little bit daunting. I hope tonight has been a blessing to you though, as we've seen how God had a plan, God made a promise, and he kept his promise. And I think it relates to us in our world today. As we watch the news and we wonder what's going to happen next, we can read the end of the story and we can get a preview of what we know will happen next for those that believe and those that trust in the Lord. So what does Jeremiah tell us to do? Don't give up, because great is his faithfulness. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for helping us just wrap our minds around how awesome you are and how glorious your plans are. God, it's, it's a privilege for us to get to look back and see how you were working in every corner and you were working on every page of history. And it's awesome for us to say, wow, we, we know you did that. But we also need to confess that you're still doing that. You're still working. You're still in control. And sometimes we don't agree with it. Sometimes we worry about it and we get afraid and we get anxious. But help us to have that faith that Jeremiah had. And he died not getting to relish in any of the good news. He just died with hope. We don't simply have hope. We have faith. We have faith that you have done a great work and you're going to continue to do a great work. And that, yes, there's wickedness that you'll judge, but the salvation you've promised us, you will give. And all we need to do is trust in you and rejoice when we see you move one piece in one nation left or right. Because ultimately, for the glory of you and for the greatness of the gospel, you are moving everything right where it needs to be. So God, help us to give you place to be sovereign. Help us to give you place to be in control. And help us, Lord, to not panic but praise you more and more. We ask this in Jesus' name.